As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like shade, leaves and footling. James, what is footling? I've no idea, I just thought it would pop it in. <laughs> it's brilliant. Uh, or braids, grades and esplanades, maids, blades and escapades. That's almost poetic there, Sam. That's mm. incredible. Uh, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of birds is in fact all about discovery in the Viking world, or that the history of wings is all about biblical angels and the Christmas story, early modern angels and the Reformation, conservation and falcons, the Cottingley fairies, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Hmm, very good indeed. The man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, let's just say, if history was a Chinese wet market, right... <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> this Love man it. this man would be the health inspector checking for avian flu, SARS and COVID-19 amongst the caged wildlife. He may in fact be the man there from Save the Historic Animals Foundation, which I've just made up, who just set free this trapped livestock of the past to glory in the upturned wings and beaks of these once caged beasts of history, bringing them to your home in all of their technicolor color <laughs> flapping glory. Whew. He is Professor Extraordinary of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I'm exhausted just listening to that. And you put me to total shame because uh, I've spent nothing like the time in thinking uh, about how to introduce you. But nonetheless, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grimmest days of lockdown. Well, let's just say he's Mr Selfridge himself, inventor of the department store in London. Mm. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical adventurer and my dear friend across town, Dr Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Mr Selfridge. I like that. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a good title. I shall, I shall uh, carve that into my, into my bedpost. I post. think you should. Yeah. I think you should. Mm. Um, so, uh, Hello, everyone. Delighted to be here. And we are going to do the history of shopping. This was one of James's ideas. Uh, James, before we start, let me just tell you that when I, I each time we do an episode, I make myself a little file 
and uh, I come back to it. And and when I came back to it yesterday to do some research for this, I I, said, I saw that we were doing the history of hopping, not shopping, <laughs> um, and it made me laugh okay. so so much that I thought I would just think a little bit about the history of hopping. Okay, just bear with me because it's quite good. Okay, it's go really on. interesting. So, what type of hopping could you be doing? It might be the process of making beer with hops, which has a fascinating <laughs> history in its own way, and um, not just for flavour, but also hops to preserve the beer rather than just flavour it. That comes from 1150 in a Benedictine establishment uh, in the Rhineland. Um, but there's earlier evidence, James, of hopping um, to uh, you know, use hops to uh, make beer in 822. It's very, very old indeed. Or, of course, you could do actual hopping, the, the Lindy Hop, very important dance, very interesting dance, um, not only because it was a kind of a cultural phenomenon that broke through race barriers in the 1920s and the 1930s. So two little aspects of the history of hopping, which we are not going to be talking about, James, because today we are doing the history of shopping. Yes, which is which is totally <laughs> different and completely unconnected. But I love that idea of of of, of hopping. Uh, and I have nothing to add to hop, except That's you fine. could hop hop down the shops, I suppose. You, you could so hop this down is the a, shops. It, I, I'm interested in this for three reasons. One, primarily, is that I'm writing a chapter on shopping at the moment. Right. So I'm thinking I'm thinking about all sorts of things related to shopping for gloves. So I'm sure that will I'm sure that will come into what I'm saying. Um you know in for so I'm interested in the period 1400 to 1800 and basically the experience of buying gloves. You know how do you how do you how do you buy them where do you buy them you know who has them what's the experience of doing that. And I've been reading some absolutely fascinating stuff including about the rise of haptic shopping that I'm very excited to have discovered. This is about the, the sensory experience of of shopping. Um, I'm also interested in shopping because we wrote a chapter in our book on the Romans on shopping. And I think I'm going to talk a little bit about that because some of the work that we did there uh, was absolutely fascinating. And it was a period I had little researched before, little studied, actually. And so I was delving into the archaeological record uh, of shopping there, which is which is really, really interesting. So there's a huge material culture related to food and shopping. And just before lockdown, I went to see a brilliant exhibition at the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford called Last Supper in Pompeii. It was actually after we'd written this chapter, but I was amazed how much of the stuff that we had researched and written about actually cropped up in this exhibition. So there's you can still get the catalogue, The Last Supper in Pompeii. But also, thirdly, I was struck uh, by a discovery uh, just before Christmas, uh, which was profiled uh, around the sort of Christmas period, late in December. Uh, December, the, the on Boxing Day, actually. So a lovely sort of piece that I discovered in Reuters uh, online which was archaeologists in Pompeii. So, you know, Pompeii, that city uh, buried in volcanic eruption in 79 AD. Archaeologists discovered what they think is a frescoed hot food and drink shop that basically served up um, Roman passers-by, you know, food and drink. Uh, it's known as a termopolium, uh, which is Latin for hot drinks counter, uh, and the shop was discovered in the archaeological park's Regio 5 site. Uh, and this isn't open to the public, but it's just been 
unveiled. And they found all sorts of things here, including the front of a counter, which was decorated with brightly coloured frescoes, which depicted animals which are part of the food that was sold there. Uh, there are a couple of chickens and ducks hanging upside down. And also, they get this, Sam, they discovered traces of nearly 2,000-year-old food hmm. um, found in the bottom of these terracotta jars, uh, which is basically evidence of the food that was sold in these, in these shops. Um, so, you know, there's evidence of of what they what they ate there's evidence of what they ate from so we've got um bronze drinking bowls uh we've got ceramic jars we've got wine flasks all of this kind of stuff so what what I think was really really striking here is how you think of you think of Pompeii and you think of it as something that is 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 extraordinary um but you think of it very much as as static as done but actually What's fascinating about this is that it is a working archaeological site and people are still digging things up and discovering new things about how people lived in the ancient past. So there we are, Sam. There's my starter for starter for 10. Very good. I have an interesting starter as well. Um, I, I went shopping the other day. Uh, this isn't a game. I went shopping and bought a tomato. I went shopping and with my kids and I found a discarded shopping list. Now, I would usually not paying attention to this, but a friend of mine collects discarded shopping lists, uh, which is a, a, a slightly strange thing to do, but they're fascinating. And I picked this one up and um, what was interesting is that I sat down with my kids, right, and we did a little historical exercise to try and work out what we could what we could kind of find out from the person who wrote this shopping list. It was very short, it was very simple. They wanted some eggs, they wanted some flour, they wanted some baking soda. Um, a, a variety of other things. But by looking at this list, we worked out, we guessed that the person who wrote it was of a certain age, a quite wobbly handwriting. Um, there was, we realised that by looking at the list, we could possibly even recreate the geography of their kitchen. It's like you can imagine them going round firstly to this larder area where there were jams and various pieces and then moving around the kitchen. So um, you could kind of recreate, recreate what was going on there. There were a couple of items which were really strange. There was um, he or she, elderly, I suspect it was an elderly she, wanted water dash small. They wanted some small water. And I've been kind of, I stopped and been thinking about what was going on here. And um, I think that the shopping list was written by an elderly person for someone else shopping on her behalf who would not go and buy a large bottle of water, wanted a small bottle of water. My point is, James, that by just looking at this wonderful little list, we did some really important historical uh, text analysis. And we, we, we reckoned we could imagine the person doing it, that they'd created the list so that someone else could go shopping for them. We could even recreate the geography of their kitchen as well as what they were eating. Um, a lot of lemon cakes, I think. <laughs> um, but yeah, fun little thing. So if ever you're in the supermarket, find a list and uh, have a look at it and see what you can work out from the list. And if you do so, uh, you will be thinking like a historian. That's your little challenge there. Goodness me, three things spring to mind there. Um, the first thing that springs to mind is that when I lived in the United States about 15 or so years ago, uh, some friends of mine introduced me to a publication called Lost and Found, uh, which was a serial publication that came out, I can't remember whether it was monthly or every sort of quarter, 
Um, but basically, it, there were little articles uh, and pictures, photographs of things that had been discovered, all sorts of random things. And there was one uh, edition called Dirty Lost and Found, uh, which was basically slightly... Um, you know, risque things that have been found. People photographed in uncompromising, got in compromising positions and that kind of thing. And one of the most extraordinary things there that they discovered was, in fact, a a rather weird shopping list uh, of an individual who'd written down their monthly expenditure. And they talked about, you know, stuff for rent, electricity, uh, food, you know, all of that kind of thing. And then at the bottom, uh, $400 on heroin, <laughs> which, was like, which was quite extraordinary. Um, but it also makes me think about that time we went to that show in Credit and Arts. And in the one of the public rooms there, there was this amazing wall display of those shopping lists by this old woman. Yeah. Uh, who lived locally. Do you remember that? The shopping lists that were pasted on the wall that showed the minutiae of her life. Um, the third third point I, is I think that... she suffered from Parkinson's or something, and the whole point right. was that the um, the, the lists uh, sort of degraded over time. You could see that the quality of the handwriting mm. going down, the, mm. the detail of, of actually what they wanted became a bit more vague. Um, she received help over time, so there was an interesting personal history of this, this lady over time. Yeah. It was one of the one of the best things I've seen for some time. Yeah, it was brilliant. But thirdly, there's a big, you know, important historical point here is that one of the ways in which, if you're thinking about sources for reconstructing the history of shopping, shopping lists throughout time tell you an awful lot of things about what people consumed. And we have ancient shopping lists. We have medieval shopping lists. We've got early modern shopping lists and all the way to today. So how... You know, how do people, what do people buy? How do they buy them? What kinds of things are they buying? How much does it cost? You know, all of those things are are really interesting and a part and parcel of how we think about shopping. And actually, one of the things is to think about shopping from the perspective of shops and to think about how how goods are sold. And that has a fascinating history. If you think about... You know, go back to what we were describing about Pompeii and ancient Rome. A lot of that is those are fixed shops that are selling things. They're fixed shops on the street. They have a fixed abode. But also there would be itinerant people around the place sort of peddling things. So peddlers and chapmen carrying things. And if you think about if you think about this in terms of in terms of historical geography, how do goods travel around the world or around Say, say, for example, we think about England uh, in the early modern period, which is what I'm working on at the moment. But, you know, you, how do you if you're in somewhere like London, which has fixed shops, you know, it's quite clear that you can go to those shops and you're able to to buy certain things. But alongside those fixed shops, you also have um, street sellers and markets and fairs that are much more itinerant. And then you have peddlers and packmen and chapmen who literally pack their goods up onto their back and go off wandering around the country and and selling them. So actually, if you start reconstructing all of those all of those different kinds of shops and selling opportunities, those different kinds of retail that are fixed and also itinerant, you can actually see how people across the country nationwide are able to get access to Goods, and we've got some terrific sources uh, that I'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But maybe over to you, Sam. 
Okay, um, I I wasn't initially sure what I was going to talk about, but then I realised that in the last decade or so, I've actually become a historian of shopping. I did a series on the Silk Road for the BBC, on the Maritime Silk Road for National Geographic. I then went back and did the Silk Railroad. So I've been doing sort of trans pan-Asian shopping documentaries. Um, and that tells you all about uh, shopping, changing practices in consume, uh, consumerism, patterns of trade and demand. Um, China's amazing market. So I mentioned the wet market at the beginning. I've been to all of them. I mean, they're amazing things. I'm not sure I've been to the, to the Wuhan one, but I've been to a lot of uh, very strange ones indeed. Uh, been to factories, trading superstores. I actually visited Ewu, which is it's the, the world's largest... Uh, um, it's a market for small commodities, I think it's described as. So just like small things, but it's where people want to buy stuff manufactured in China and bring it back to Europe, bring it back to the UK, and you go and explore the wonders of Ewu. Um, and that was part, I was looking at that, um, trying to understand China's Belt and Road Initiative and how Ewu became so important as the terminus of a train which now runs to Europe. It takes only 16 days to reach Madrid. It's the longest freight train route in the world. Um, you know, before, 2,000 years ago, I suppose it would, would have taken at least a year, maybe a bit longer, to travel all of that time. Anyway, uh, one particular aspect of trade in China, which I've always found interesting, is the Canton trade. Um, we'll just talk a little bit about this. Between 1700 and, I suppose, 1840 or so is a really interesting period. Canton is, of course, the old name uh, of the modern city of Guangzhou. Uh, so it's on the Pearl River, a little north of, of Hong Kong. Not very far from Shenzhen, big uh, tech tech city nowadays. Um, I went there, uh, I suppose, a couple of years ago. Made a little film about the large African population there. Obviously, as a as a big shopping centre, it's attracted people from all over the world. It's got a big African population, and also, interestingly, it's got a really large Catholic population. Um, you might be wondering why there are a load of Catholics in Guangzhou, and the answer, of course, is the Silk Road. Uh, they first arrived arrived there overland. Um, and there's, there's an amazing Catholic cathedral there called the Sacred Heart Cathedral. If you're interested in, um, in ecclesiastical buildings, do have a look at that, built in the 19th century by the French. Beautiful place. I have been inside it and actually uh, attended a, um, a, uh, a service there. Anyway, I want to be talking about Guangzhou um, and what, that was going, what was going on there in the 1700s and the 1800s. Um, from about 1699, you've got French and British East India Company sending maybe a ship or two a year, not very much, but, but enough to make a direct contact. Other uh, trading companies, the Aust- Austrian, um, the Ostend General India Company, the Dutch East India Company, the Danish Asiatic Company, the Swedish East India, East India Company. Um, uh, there were others as well, Prussians and the Trieste Company, all sending ships. Now, what happens is that in 1757, there's a change of policy with the Qing government and an imperial decree which prohibits all foreign trade other than that conducted at Canton. So that means it becomes a serious port. You can't trade in China anywhere apart from Canton. Um, just a couple of exceptions, and that was was uh, on for the Japanese and the Russians, who were not allowed in Canton, but they had special arrangements to trade in other Chinese ports. So uh, that means that there are 
huge variety of foreigners, regardless of race, religion, ethnic background, language, were all welcomed in Canton. And they were also guaranteed access as long as they came uh, for peaceful and legitimate trade. So you've got a real um, a melting pot, a real metropolis of, of trade. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Main exports are tea and porcelain, but it becomes a, a meeting place for merchants all over the world. And I think one of the interesting things is that these traders are not just there to trade in bulk. They're also, they, they take the time to buy little personal items as well. And recreating the experiences of shopping in Canton is, um, is, a, is quite a challenge for the historian, but there's coming to grips with it a bit. James, you were mentioning shopping lists. Well, we have a shopping list of Benjamin Shreve of Salem, so an American trader who has gone to Guangzhou uh, in the 18th century. And we know he's there to buy one lady's parasol, six mother-of-pearl spoons, ten tin saucers for mandarin cups, two teeth brushes cases with covers, two conscience cups. I don't know what a conscience cup is. It sounds like the sort of thing you would be interested in, James. Um, two tubs of sugar candy, several jars of dried candy and more preserves, jams, basically, which his wife had specifically requested. Um, apart from this personal list, we also know that he bought silverware, tortoise shell combs, lacquerware, silks, uh, china itself, porcelain and nankeens for his wife and also for his investors. Um, it, it's interesting wondering what the experience of this would be like. You talk about experiences here, and there are a few accounts of it which do open it up in interesting ways. Um, here we've got a mid-19th century narrative, and it says that shopping, uh, according to this narrative, a stranger in China may go from one store to another every day in the year. Men, none but men, he sees at every turn. So it does seem to be a very male occupation. Um, otherwise, we've got some wonderful little uh, descriptions here I just want to share with you. This is from Sir John Francis Davis. He's a British diplomat. Uh, he's a, a second governor of Hong Kong, 1844 to 1848. And he talks about um, the experience of shopping in Guangzhou. These foreigners are attracted to the several shops by inscriptions in the European character, which sometimes promise more than they perform as when the dauber of truculent likenesses calls himself a handsome face painter. The shops, instead of being set out with the showy and sometimes expensive front of an English or French boutique, are closed in by gloomy black shutters and very ill-lit by a small skylight, or rather a hole in the roof. 
The inmates, instead of showing the civility and alacrity of shopkeepers in London or Paris and anticipating the demands of their customers in the display of their goods, slowly and sometimes sullenly produce the articles from their cases and cupboards as they may be asked for, so that shopping in Canton is far from being an agreeable pastime. Then he goes on to talk about the streets. Uh, nothing so narrow or so filthy exists in a European town. The hovels by which it is lined are occupied by abandoned Chinese who supply the poor, ignorant sailors with spirits, medicated to their taste with stimulating or stupefying drugs. And when the wretched men have been reduced to a bestial state by these poisonous liquors, they are frequently set upon by their wily seducers and robbed as well as beaten. The Chinese at length made their singularly unreasonable demand for payment as perhaps a few dollars for what might be worth a few pence. So something there on the, the dangers of shopping and how uh, the experience of, sh of, of shopping in Canton changed over time. Uh, but finally, this lovely, lovely uh, extract here. A European feels in the situation of a child taken for the first time in his life into a large toy shop containing what he considers a world of wonders. One object after another is taken up and examined and thought well worthy of bearing home, but is quickly eclipsed by the next thing which comes to hand. On the first visit to these shops, scarcely any purchase is made because you feel a desire to possess the whole I love that one. A real a sense of just how glorious and um, exotic and foreign and strange and bewildering and beguiling uh, these shops in Guangzhou would have been to uh, to traders, especially those who are going out there for the very first time. So they are James Guangzhou Canton in the 18th century. Oh, I love that. No, but enough of enough of that in the 18th century. Uh, back to gloves, uh, because this is a something I've been grappling with uh, over recent weeks. Um, and so the big question that I'm trying to, to talk about here is how people, you know, where they would go to buy their gloves and how this would work on a national scale. And as I said, we're talking about England uh, 1400 to 1800. And I think historians have shown that there is a complex set of trade networks that bring household goods from London and other merge other major urban centres into the countryside, into rural towns, in villages, through fixed shops, through markets and fairs, through street vendors, and also through itinerant sellers. So basically, you can buy gloves everywhere, from the country's capital, where it's sold at things like the Royal Exchange, which opened in the mid-16th century and in shops around London, and then in all sorts of regional uh, places as well. And one of the best sources that we have for London in the Elizabethan period is an inventory of the London haberdasher William Ginn. And this was a man who lived between 1555 and 1593. And a haberdasher basically sells all sorts of you know, household wares, a bit like the sort of small goods that you were talking about, Sam. And what we have is a massive, massive long manuscript here, partly because the guy has fallen into debt and the list is drawn up to show how much um, how much stock he's got in the shop. And it lists, get this, 185 pairs of gloves <laughs> of varying quality and finish. This was like a, all your dreams come true here. It's like a sort of a checklist of gloves. And, it, and it, what it shows is that this guy in London is selling a variety of gloves from the cheaper kind 
uh, to things that are really quite extravagant. And this is a time when gloves are given as gifts. They're given out at weddings, they're given out at funerals, they're given as New Year's gifts. And people in London are of varying you know, purse sizes. So, you know, they've got they've got varying amounts of disposable income to spend on this. And so he has lambskin gloves, sheep's leather and kid. He's got gloves that are embroidered with pearls, gold, copper and lace. And he, there's one listing uh, that reads 10 pairs of washed gloves with gold lace and another 15 pairs of Oxford gloves cut fringed. So it's incredible. And, and actually, you can piece together uh, inventories of uh, men and women like this around the country across time. And you can show that there are these fixed places where you go to buy gloves. And we can look at this happening in, in Cornwall. You can look at it in the, the north of England as well. We've then got an awful lot of evidence for itinerant sellers. So people who actually are not in a fixed place, but go around to markets, to fairs and those kinds of things. Literally packmen with a with a box on their on their on their back and they take things out into the countryside. And it means that people who are living in rural England throughout the early modern period are able to access these kinds of commodities. Uh, there's a brilliant um, example of this in literature as well. If you have a look at Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, one of my favourite characters is a sort of tricksy fellow called Autolycus, who's constantly, um, you know, in disguise, getting up to no good in this brilliant tragicomedy. And there's one point where he dresses up as a peddler and he takes his wares to the sheep shearing feasts. And, and one of the servants is sort of saying, oh, he's he's coming along. What What's he got? And the servant reply, replies, he hath ribbons of all colours in the rainbow, points more than all the lawyers in Bohemia can learnedly handle, though they come to him by the gross. Inkles, caddises, cambrics, lawns. So these are all the sort of cloths that he's got. And then he comes in to the to the feast singing, Lawn as white as driven snow, cypress black as air was crow, gloves as sweet as damask roses, musks for faces and for noses, bugle, bracelet, necklace, amber, perfume for a lady's chamber. And then he ends, come by of me, come by of me, by lads, or else your lasses cry, come by. So it gives you this, I mean, although it is a fictional uh, rendition here. It gives you this really good idea of a of a peddler travelling around. Um, we also have really good examples of inventories of peddlers. Um, and it wasn't just men, it was also women. And one of the most famous and entrepreneurial of 17th century characters is a London-based Quaker called Joan Dant, who on the death of her husband, and her husband was a weaver, from Paternoster Row in Spitalfields in London. On the death of her husband, she's a widow. And to avoid destitution, she supports herself through working as a peddler in hosiery, mercery and haberdashery. So taking around all these sort of items of clothing and small sort of consumables. And she plies her wares in the regions around London, literally carrying them on her back. And she, because she's a Quaker, she has a reputation for fairness for honest dealing and she builds up a network of contacts uh, over this time and eventually is able to 
you know, stop the the itinerant peddling as she gets older and to set up to trade wholesale. And she has, if you look at her client list, she's got a pretty discerning clientele. You know, people who come to her for luxury domestic goods and customers as far flung as Paris and Brussels. And on her death in 1715, the remaining stock of her shop was sold off. And among the wares that were used to raise funds included luxury silk gloves, silk stockings and raw silk valued at £123.45. So there we are, Sam. Mm. Uh, a little insight into what has been keeping me busy uh, these winter nights. Well, I'm very much looking forward to reading the final uh, the final result of that, James. I hope you're enjoying this episode on the history of shopping. We're going to stop there. We're going to come back because it's one in which James and I have uh, spent days doing our research. Uh, so much have we enjoyed it. We're going to come back with part two, so do bear with us. Uh, in the meantime, follow me on social media, please. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell, and the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and we are on Facebook, so check us out there. You can find out everything that we have been up to and are going to be doing at our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. That's it for now, guys. Thanks. We'll be back soon. Cheerio. Take care, guys. Uh, come back for more gloves. <laughs> Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. <laughs> 